Well, this, uh, this Monday and Tuesday, our family had the privilege of going to Cascades Camp, uh, which is down uh, east of Yelm, Washington. And uh, what we had going on there was a, a conference-wide pastors and family retreat, kind of a getaway. So you've got basically a hundred or so pastors and their families there and kids running around. And it was beautiful weather, pretty much a great time. Sophia and I got a little canoe ride and we got to see some river otters out there. And um, it was a good time, good time. But... You know, it's not all roses. Stella is starting to teethe, and she's starting to act like a two-year-old two months prior to being two. Besides her favorite word, no, her second favorite word is I, Stella. I, Stella. Typical, self-centered two-year-old, right? Well, after lunch one, uh, one day, on Tuesday, actually, <clears throat> we're coming out of the dining hall. And if you've been to Cascades Camp, you can picture the dining hall, and you know there's this manicured little landscape thing in this little tree there and so she's playing under the tree with these kids and and I say okay girls you know it's time to go back to our cabin we had to get changed for some activities and she says no I Stella so now I'm surrounded by onlookers right like I've got all these pastors there and they're all like it's all hushed like I just want to grab this kid you know and but you know what's going to happen if you grab her you know she's just going to go off and everyone's going to think like oh this guy doesn't know what he's doing so, you know, Corey and Sophia already walking across the, the, the parking lot, and so I, you know, get down all, like, pastorly, oh, Stella, you know, it's time to go. And she just defiantly just grabs that tree. It's like, I, Stella, you know. So I said, fine. I said, fine, bye-bye. You know, and we start walking away. And now, you know, with Sophia, it used to be you get 10 feet and she's at your heels. I mean, she's very much loyal. Uh, but Stella's a little more fiery. So, you know, we're totally out of sight. And she's not coming. She's not coming. And we're hiding behind a car. And all of a sudden, this shriek of horror. And she comes screaming through the parking lot. Ah, you know. As much as Stella wanted her freedom and her autonomy, she was horrified. She was horrified to realize that that freedom actually brought her isolation and brought her... No, I'm sure she's not processing this. This is my illustration, you know. You know what I'm saying? Pastor's got to make up something. But... <clears throat> The point is, I, th I think deep down, we all need some kind of structure. And the point I'm trying to make is that freedom, absolute freedom, without structure or boundaries, actually brings, actually brings anxiety. Anxiety. When we don't have any kind of boundaries, we get anxious. Because we don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know who we are anymore. Now, we've been explore exploring the book of Genesis for the past few weeks. And we've seen... Awesome things. We've seen how God created all things, how he created men and women in his image. God graciously pl placed the first people in this incredible garden where they could eat any delicious food they wanted. He gave them meaningful vocation, meaningful work to keep and to cultivate and to guard this garden sanctuary. He created men and women to bear his image by reflecting his good character and his grace and his wisdom to each other and to every created thing. He gave us freedom to do just about anything. But he also gave us some boundaries. He gave us some context. He said, you're free to eat of any tree out here, except for just one, just one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of experiencing. In the beginning, the man and woman uh, were naked 
and they weren't ashamed. And last week I went into this nakedness thing a little bit, uh, not just talk about nakedness, but because in, in biblical literature, uh, nakedness is metaphorical for being vulnerable, for being exposed. Okay, So yes, they were literally naked. But the reason that they were naked and not ashamed is because they had no need to cover up. They'd never been in a, in a broken relationship before. They had nothing to hide. They put on no masks. They didn't have to pretend they were somebody they weren't. They didn't have to wear fig leaves. They could just be themselves. I don't know if you've ever considered that, what that would be like, to, to not have to get up and look in the mirror and make sure your hair's in place. And if you're not into that, you know, make sure that you put clothes on. Or, you know, everybody has a little bit of self-consciousness, right? How am I going to be perceived when I say this or that? They were living images of God, the man and the woman. But these images, as we saw last week, were broken. I, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist this for you, Kennedy. But like Anakin was seduced by the dark side, Adam and Eve were seduced by an idea, right? They were, in, they were seduced by an idea from the serpent. And this is the idea that maybe, just maybe, God didn't have their best interests in mind. The idea that maybe he was holding back the best experience of all ultimate freedom, ultimate knowing, full autonomy, no boundaries, the lure and the lie of complete freedom. So they ate the, the forbidden fruit, and for the first time, they felt the rush of ultimate freedom? No. They felt the rush of anxiety, of fear, of shame, of broken relationship. They felt the rush of all the broken stuff that you and I actually just take for granted is everyday life. Thanks, ancestors. In one bite, there is no going back. And what they thought was going to give them full freedom really made them slaves. So what's the result of their rebellion? What did God do after they ate the forbidden fruit? That's what we're going to explore today. We're going to focus on Genesis 3, 14 through 24, um, but I'm actually going to start in verse 8. So if you'll stand with me, please, I'll read, uh, read the scripture starting in Genesis 3, verse 8. So they've just, uh, they've just eaten of the fruit, they realize they're naked, they cover up with the fig leaves, and here we go. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
And then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now... The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he must stretch out his hand, uh, and now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, thank you for your word, um, a powerful word, a, um, a sobering word but also a word full of good news, a word full of grace and mercy. And I pray, God, that you would uh, speak to us through this word this evening, that you would confront us again with, with our own situation, with our own fallenness, but also with the way that you pursue and the way that you love and the way that you offer us a way to eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. So what happened? The image of God in human beings was broken. And the consequence, we learned in chapter 2, of eating this fruit was death. Period. That's what God said. So, what we would expect is the next sentence after they eat the fruit, would God to say, did you eat the fruit? And they say yes, basically after pointing their fingers. We would expect that they would die. Right? That's it. The story could have ended in less than three chapters of Genesis. It would be a real, you know, memorizing the whole Bible would be really easy. Of course, we wouldn't be around to do that. Something happened. Something happened. We deserved death, but God brings life because He's gracious. The fact that the world is still here, that the earth continues to circle the sun once a year, the fact that Right now, the sun seems like it's going down because the earth is spinning once every 24 hours. The fact that you are here and that you're drawing breath, although some of us are a little stuffy, it's a grace. It is a grace that we are alive one day, let alone 35 years or 45 years or 70 years or however many years you're around. Yes, yes, as we all know, it's not all sunrises and sunsets. It's painful. Life can be confusing. Life can be hard. Life can seem downright cruel. And Genesis 3 addresses the question of why. Why is life like that? Why is the world broken? Why is there tragedy around us? And just to top it all off, it also addresses the big question of where. Where is God in all of this brokenness and all of this tragedy? So let's take a look at the text. After the finger pointing and the blaming from Adam to Eve to the serpent, God first addresses the serpent. 
Now, the New, Testifi- uh, the, the New Testament identifies the serpent character as Satan, uh, the, um, <clears throat> the deceiver, also known as the devil in the New Testament, who is the accuser. The form Satan takes here as a serpent is not that important. It's likely it's a serpent because if Moses, probably uh, most tradition says that he had a hand in writing Genesis, probably wrote most of it, if not all. Um, Think about Moses' life, where he grew up in Egypt. Who was Moses' oppressor? The Pharaoh. And what was on Pharaoh's headpiece? The symbol of the serpent. Pharaoh is the agent of evil. Okay. So God curses the serpent. He curses Satan. The serpent gets no grace. He's cursed more than any other creature, and he's being forced to eat dust. Now, Corey is terrified of snakes, and she loves this scripture. She loves that that snake has to eat dust, and then it gets cursed and everything. And I'm sorry, sweetie, to say it, but um, this isn't so much about why snakes crawl on their belly. It's not really a, a biology lesson at all. You see, eating dust in the Bible has to do with shame and humility. So in God saying that the serpent had to eat dust all of its days, it's talking about shaming Satan, greatly humbling this deceiver who thinks that he's a rival to God in some way, shape, or form. He cursed and shamed the serpent. And he placed this ingrained enmity, this hatred between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. The seed of the woman would inflict a serious and fatal wound on the serpent, and the serpent will inflict a serious and fatal wound on the seed of the woman. I know oftentimes in some of our translations it says something like, the seed of the, the serpent will strike his heel, and then he will crush the head of the serpent. But actually, the same Hebrew word is used for both crush and strike. The meaning of the word is to inflict serious harm or even a fatal wound. So the serpent will inflict serious harm or even a fatal wound unto the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will inflict serious harm or even a fatal wound on the serpent. Now listen, what is meant by seed here? Seed is a very, very important motif, very important word in Genesis. And as we continue our walk through Genesis, I'll be pointing that out time and time again. We're going to see lots of seed language. Seed has to do with children, with generations, with families. So there's going to be a seed line, a line of people that seeks after holiness and goodness. And that will be the seed line of the woman. And there's also going to be a seed line or generations of people or people that are born generation after generation after generation who who make Satan their Lord, who rebel against God time and time again, and who choose allegiance with Satan. These lines are going to be in conflict with each other up until this day. And you can kind of see that in a lot of the evil that's happening. In fact, that's what next week's story is about with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel represent these two differing seed lines and how that plays out. But it's a little teaser trailer. So in one sense, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are these groups or generations of people that have existed since day one and they keep going throughout history. The serpent is cursed. The serpent is allowed to exist for some time, we don't know how long, to test people. He tempts and he lures. And the way we respond to the temptations of the serpent in our life helps us see which allegiance, which seed line we really stand in. 
as we're tempted and we choose to follow God, we can say, oh, I'm, I'm in the righteous seed line. Or if we choose to follow Satan, well, that comes up in this tempting and testing. But there's another sense in which the word seed is used here. It's also talking very specifically about a specific person striking that head of the serpent. And a specific person being struck on the heel by the serpent. And of course, as the story plays out, Jesus can be traced back to the seed line of the woman. He indeed is stricken by Satan. He's mortally wounded. In fact, he dies on a cross. But what Genesis 3 doesn't know of, and what even Jesus' followers did not expect, is that Jesus, after three days in the grave, rose again. And in rising again, he inflicts a fatal blow on Satan, on this serpent. How does he do that? Because Satan's biggest weapon is death. That's his biggest tool. He can take life and, and thinks that he can separate us from God. But Jesus, in dying and being resurrected from the dead, took that tool out of Satan's toolbox. But, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I just can't help to jump to the gospel. But, okay, let's, let's get back to the text. The fact is that our world is still broken. To the woman, we see that she has this curse and that she's going to have increased pain in childbearing. We talked about this in our small group. I, I don't know who mentioned it, but I was like, oh yeah, she would have had pain in the first place. It's, it's now increased pain. And I was thinking, yeah, how could you not have pain from a baby coming out of that? But anyway, uh, so now it, it's increased pain. The relationship between her and the man that was intended to be an equal partnership. It was intended to be... Uh, uh, Equal partnership. It wasn't intended to have one to have all this power over the other and to dominate the other. But now that relationship has been corrupted. And in this curse, God isn't so much saying this is the way it has to be. He's saying that because you've broken relationship, because now you, are, you doubt that the other one is going to have your best interest in mind, this is how it's going to play out. This is just how it is. That you're not going to be able to trust each other. That each one is going to be vying for power in your married relationship. Walter Brueggemann writes, Perfect love casts out fear. Right? That's biblical. Perfect love casts out fear. But the man and the woman in our story learned another thing. Perfect fear casts out love and leaves only desire. Perfect fear casts out love and leaves only desire. So... Not only is the human relationship with God broken, but interrelationships between people, especially men and women in the, covenant in the covenant of marriage. There's constant doubt that we can honestly, really trust one another. There's a constant underlying anxiety that we have to look out for ourselves because no one else is going to look out for us. The man is likewise cursed. The ground, which had pretty much just popped up wonderful plants and fruit all the time, is now popping out thistles and thorns. The man is going to have to work and work hard. It's not going to be easy. Remember, before the fall, work, work was given to the man and the woman. Work is not a bad thing. God created work before the fall. But now, after the fall, the ground is cursed and work becomes so much more difficult. 
I don't know what kind of work you do. It doesn't necessarily have to be with the ground, but don't you feel like sometimes you take two steps forward and one step back? You meet with resistance. Now, I think the important thing as we read Genesis 3 is not to get bogged down with the specifics. You have to remember that in the ancient Near East, the main roles for women were to rear families. And the main roles for men were to provide for those families. And it was usually by working the ground, subsistence farming. The idea of the curse here is not specifically on childbearing or marital relationships or just farming. The idea is that the world is now broken. The whole world is now broken, and it's broken in four major relationships. First of all, it's broken in our relationship with God. Do you go every minute of every day thinking that you are in totally perfect, you and God are like this, you're always just praying all the time and just living out of the Spirit? Probably not. Probably not. There's a brokenness in our relationship with God. Those walks in the cool of the morning, like it talks about in Genesis, those don't happen, but few and far between for most people. Okay, so there's a brokenness there, a separation from God. There's a brokenness, the second relationship, in ourselves. Uh, there is a, um, a self-consciousness. We have shame. We want to cover up. We wear masks. We want to hide our faults from each other. It's really difficult to be real with one another. And I think that's why it's so important to have this authenticity and acceptance as a core value as a church, one of our core values. If we can't be real with each other here, where can we be real? Third is our relationship with others is broken. I mean, this is evident in a war-torn world. If you're married, you know that you don't get along all the time. If you have friends, you know that you disagree. If you work with somebody else, right? If you drive, you know that there's problems, right? So our relationships with other people are strained. And finally, the fourth relationship that's broken is our relationship with the creation. No longer are we these benevolent uh, masters of our all creation. Now bees are all stinging us, and you've got to watch out for, for bears, and the hurricanes come and wipe us out, and there are spiders. Did I mention the spiders? It's right up there with plague. You know, so, so here we are experiencing all this tragedy and brokenness, and we want to know why. Don't you? Don't, we want to know why. We want to know why this happened and we say certainly because this couple this Adam and Eve whether it's two people or the first people it doesn't matter just because they screwed this up they broke this trust with God this is the consequence that's harsh that doesn't seem right but what if what if God really Valued those first people so much and valued us so much that he really gave them responsibility to really care for creation, to really be his image bearers, to really reflect his glory. And when they broke it, he allowed that to break the system. Is it so hard to believe? 
Sometimes I will stand in my kids' room and I will look down at them and I will think, why on earth are you trusting me with these lives? God, you know how broken I am. You know how imperfect I am. You know how I raised my voice today. You know how I totally missed what was important to Sophia today. Why do you let me father these kids? Is it so hard to believe that God would create all of this and make its proper functioning dependent on our trust in Him? I did not say dependent on what we do. I said dependent on our trust in Him. Is that so hard to believe? Not really. Actually, it sounds a lot like God. The fact is that the first humans broke that relationship with God. They ceased to trust Him, and they broke the world. And theologians argue up and down about how this sin nature is passed down to us. There's lots of theories to that, but two things are for sure. First of all, our ancestors sinned in paradise. Okay? So now you and I are born into a broken system. How much harder is it to do the right thing when you're born into something that's already broken? You're watching imperfect parents and modeling what they do, and you're just bound to sin. Second, that there is clearly something broken within us as well. I'm not so sure if... Uh, you put somebody on a desert island that was all perfect, as perfect as we could make it, that they would be any different. Watch any two-month-old or three-month-old. It's pretty ingrained in there that we're selfish, that we want what we want, and we don't care what anybody else wants. There's a tendency in every human to be autonomous, to do it our way, to break the boundaries in search of freedom. And here's the cool thing. Why did God set up the system like this? If we didn't really have freedom, consider this. Freedom gives us the ability to love like we could never love without it. Take a woman like Mother Teresa. She used her freedom to lay her rights down, to lay her life down to quit grasping at all the worldly material things and to give herself for a higher cause. We would look at a person like that, most of us, and say, wow, that's a woman who really loved. She used her freedom for that. Vice versa, you know, on the other hand, you could look at an evil dictator who uses his or her freedom to suppress and oppress people and to do very evil things. So freedom is really a double-edged sword. It can give us all kinds of potential to do great things, freedom to give ourselves over to God and to listen to Him, or freedom to be tyrants. And this is the lie that we keep hoping is true, that if we remove all the boundaries in our life, we'll find true freedom and we'll find happiness. But unfortunately, when we remove the boundaries, the right boundaries that God has given us, and we try and play God, we find that we become slaves. We become unable to be little gods. I was thinking about this and how much our art depicts uh, this anxiety that comes from the seeking after knowledge and seeking after freedom. 
I was thinking about like the gothic genre, right? Like um, Mary Shelley, right? She writes Frankenstein and some of these types of books. And the motivation behind a book like Frankenstein is this absolute fear that maybe our technology is advancing so fast that our ethics are not keeping up with it. And what kind of mess can we cause when we're seeking after this autonomy and to break all the boundaries and to be truly free and to be just like God and oh my goodness, we can't handle that. We now possess the power to destroy the planet with warheads. We can extend life and in certain situations in a lab we can create life. We can extend it. We can do all these things, albeit with stuff that God already created, so we're not really like God. But we live in a time that is absolutely confusing. We live in a culture that aims at control, and we think that knowledge is the key to that control. We seek after power through education, mapping the genome, harnessing atomic energy, multiplying our range of power with one of these, where I can be on the road and send an email and communicate with people all over the world. But are we better off for all of this stuff? All of the stuff we can do, are we better off for it? What is knowledge? Proverbs tell us that true knowledge, that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear, is the deep reverence for God and His created order, His created boundaries. That is the beginning of true wisdom. Not breaking the boundaries, but respecting the God-given boundaries by submitting to Him. Now, as we perpetuate sin by seeking to be our own gods, it's no wonder that the world continues in brokenness. So, I've got a question. Why did God extend our lives at all? Why didn't He just end it? Why the tragic experiment? Why give us 70 to 100 years, if we're lucky, to play this all out? And time after time, generation after generation, it seems to go the same way. Because. Because it doesn't have to be that way. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, I mean, this guy, this guy had it all. He had all the money. He had fame, he had wisdom, he had food and wine and women. He was a made man. But you know what Ecclesiastes, what it boils down to? Is that writer, he says, if there is no God, if there is no right relatedness to God, then all of it, all the success, all the fame, all the pain, all the sorrow, all the joy, all of it is futile. Just chasing after the wind. It's worthless. Now Adam, in our story, had just been caught with his metaphorical fig leaves down. The sentence had been... Whoa. Lord, protect any children in the crosswalks. Wow, the car was going fast. The sentence had been handed down from God. And what will Adam's response be? You ever think about this? He's caught with, you know, naked and, and he's just rebelled against God. The flood of shame and the flood of anxiety, the flood of all these feelings of brokenness are finally there. And God has handed down this curse. What is Adam's response going to be? Is he going to despair? 
No. No, that's not what happens. Adam realizes, just like we should realize, I think, that he deserved death, but God provided a way of life. Notice what Adam does next, you guys. This is awesome. He names his wife Eve. Eve. Do you know what Eve means? It means life. Do you know that uh, there's a translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint, and it's in Greek. And do you know what they translate Eve as in the Greek? Zoe. For those of you who are around for our John series, remember, there's two ways of saying life in Greek. There's bios, which is just like you live, you're born, you live, you die life. Biology. And then there's Zoe life. Eternal life. God breathed life. Eve's name is translated Zoe in the Septuagint. Adam is taking a big step of faith here. He says, you know, I deserve death. But this creator God is also not just the, 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 the instigator of life. He's the sustainer of life. And he gives life in grace when I deserve death. So Adam, he turns his back on the serpent. He turns his back on that way of life. And out of hope, out of trust in his God, he names his wife Eve because he believes the prophecy that from her seed is going to come this generation, this seed line that's going to take care of the serpent, that's going to undo the curse. It's pretty cool. You didn't know there was this much gospel in Eve, huh? Yes, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They had to be. Can you imagine living forever in this broken world? Living forever with a disease or living forever with some of the ailments that we have? Expelling us from the Garden, from that tree of life, which every, is every bit as much a mercy as it is a punishment. You think about it. The promise... The promise is that death does not have to have the final word for us. God sends the people out of the garden, but he performs one more act of grace for them in this story. He clothes them. He clothes them. Remember that nakedness in the Bible refers to a person's vulnerability, exposing their shame. And Adam and Eve must have been full of shame after they've just destroyed God's wonderful world. Mere fig leaves could not cover their shame. Because when you just think about the logistics of this, don't picture me naked, but... So, you know, if you're naked and you just have leaves, you're, there's a lot of other nakedness exposed, right? You can't possibly cover your shame with fig leaves. So God provides clothes. And in the Hebrew, the word for clothes here is katnot. Interesting. Katnot means a long garment that covers their... Neck all the way down to their ankles. All the way down. Their entire nakedness is covered. Their entire shame is covered by this living God, this life-giving God. You know what else a cot note was for? It's the garment that priests would wear. So God not only covers their shame, but sends them out, reinstating their priestly duty. You and I are now the recipients of this. We get our shame covered by this God who is gracious to us, and he sends us out. He instates us back into this role as priests, as image bearers of the living God. God 
takes the initiative to gather his broken image bearers and he binds us up with bandages of love and hope and new life. And what are these cotton notes, these garments made of? They're made of animal skins. You ever think about that? God performs the first animal sacrifice in order to cover our shame. Our sin is so deep that it takes life to save a life. And for generations and generations and generations, people who follow God would sacrifice animals as a way to temporarily atone for their sin. One day, God would send his perfect lamb, Jesus the Christ, to die once and for all. To cover our shame and our sin in one decisive act on the cross. He clothes us in garments that cover our shame by declaring us right with God. And he not only forgives us, but he calls us out to follow him, to clothe us in the robes of priests. Peter talks about all who follow Jesus as priests of the living God. You and I are called to reflect his goodness and his glory to each other. And to our community. God gives his spirit. So that in his power. We might live in right relationship with God. We might sacrifice our own selfish desire. To live at peace in our marriages. In our friendships. and our businesses. Our churches. Our cities. And the world. And so we're left with the question. Whose seed are we? Whose seed are we? And it comes down to one word, to trust. And we're going to trust. We're going to trust that Jesus is that good, that he's that good to cover us in all of our shame and brokenness and then to call us to follow him and serve him. I'm standing up here saying he is that good. Do you join me in prayer? Thank you, Father, for... Um, Revealing to us in this story that is actually so dark and um, full of curse and full of what could be despair. Thank you for filling it with gospel. Thank you for uh, being so gracious with us. Thank you for the privilege of living on this side of history, this side of the cross, Lord. The people in this story could have could never have even perceived how this would play out. We thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself, for being that ultimate sacrifice to rescue us. Jesus, we repent of where we have um, sought our own autonomy. We've rebelled against you and thought that we knew how to live better than you. We're desperate to know how to trust you more and more each day. I thank you that you are relentlessly good. And for those who have already decided to follow you, we know that oftentimes we still rebel. Thank you that you are known as the hound of heaven who initiates rescue time and time again. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to trust, to help us to find life in you and you alone.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.